Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. Our current series is Everyday Saints, a study of the book of Ephesians, looking into what we have and who we are in Jesus. Ephesians chapter 4, go ahead and open there if you have a Bible. There's some on the tables or chairs near you. If you don't have one, I want you to be looking into this passage because it's a good one. Um, we've been walking through Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, and um, it's been a, a good journey. I've enjoyed teaching through Ephesians. Paul has started out with this big picture of what God has done in Christ, how God has called people to himself, formed this community called the church for the praise of his glory. And Paul's also instructed us, hey, because of what God has done, here's how we're to live in this community and in this world. Here's what our attitudes should be like. Here's what our life should be like. And Paul has a lot of instructions in the latter half of Ephesians for us to to live. What is our life supposed to look like? The difficulty is sometimes we can separate those two things. Paul will say, here's what God has done, and here's what our lives should be like, and sometimes we can separate those two things. So we then think that being a Christ follower is just about doing these things. It's about avoiding these sins and not doing this stuff and doing these certain things. And then we forget about, oh, here's what God has done. And what Ephesians does and what it constantly does is it weaves these little threads of remember what God has done. Remember how God has saved you. Remember how God has called you. Remember how God has forgiven you. Remember how God is kind to you. And so all of our behavior and all of our attitude that Paul calls us towards is linked to what God has done. It's never separate. Christianity, the Christian faith is not just a list of do these things. We do these things. It's always connected to what God has done. And Ephesians makes that abundantly clear. Uh, If you just take the passage, though, that we're going to look at today, and you forget about that link, and you forget about the big story of Ephesians, you might miss that, and it, might, it's very, it's a, it's a, it would be horrific if you missed that. Because if you just look at these eight or so verses that we're going to look at today, you can say, all right, I'm supposed to do this, do this, do this, do this, and not do this, not do this, not do this, not do this. Lesson learned, go and do. But Paul's not just doing that, okay? So as we get into this passage, we need to understand that this is framed in the big picture of what God has done. How God is calling a people to himself, saving them by the work of Christ, forming them into this community called the church. And there is behavioral expectations within that. Now, I don't know about you guys, but sometimes when you read the Bible, it is, um, it is comforting. Very comforting. It's almost like a, a salve, right? You ever have like just some kind of weird injury, weird rash, something like that, and you just had some cream that was prescribed or you found and it just worked and it just comforted and you could not wait to get that stuff on. I had this incident uh, about five years ago where I touched something and I had some weird allergic reaction and my hands ballooned up, like you ever see those rubber gloves or the, 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 the you just kind of blow on them and then they, they swell up? My hands looked like that. They looked like this weird puffy, it was all swollen up and I could barely bend my fingers and it was just this crazy weird rash that the doctor says you're allergic to something so I'll put this on it and wait. And basically I had no idea what happened. I tend to have doctors tell me that a lot, like I have no idea what happened to you. Um, that just that's me right so anyway they gave me this cream and this stuff and i like, there would be times where my hands would just hurt it, it just felt like 
like when I've heard people describe really bad arthritis, that's what it felt like. I just couldn't bend and it just ached and I couldn't think about anything. And so I run in under cold water and put this cream on and it just felt good and comforting. And I longed for the time where I could put that on sometimes. And sometimes God's word is like that. It's like a salve where it soothes and comforts. And we hear words like the Lord is our shepherd. God is sovereign in all things. He's working all things for the good of those who love him. We hear those good, comforting words and it's just... It's good for our soul. And there are times where we need to hear that. Times of suffering, times of struggle, times of anxiety, where we need to hear about God's care and God's comfort and those sorts of things. And pages of Scripture are filled with those comforting words. There are other times, then, where we read Scripture and it feels like a sword. It cuts and wounds And it's difficult to read, and it hurts sometimes because it exposes our hearts. And it exposes something in us that is even opposed to God. And so sometimes God's word is like a salve, sometimes God's word is like a sword. And we tend to make calendars and mugs and throw rugs out of the first set, and we tend to largely ignore the second set except when we need to tell our children certain instructions. Right? Sometimes God's word is like a salve, and sometimes it's like a sword. So if you're here today as a Christ follower, this might be a sword-like passage for you. It might cut and wound a little bit. You may need to do some repentance and worship and hear this and uh, respond to it in that way. And let me just say this. If you're here today as a, as a non-Christian, you're, you're here to just hear some things, or somebody dragged you here this morning, I think you need to hear this, and I think it's going to be a very interesting passage for you. Um, I'm going to, to show you in this passage, I think, where many of our societal and relational problems lie. Um, the answer is not in a government program or a personality harmony or greater technology. The answer in so many of these relational problems, as Paul has said earlier in this passage, is Jesus. Jesus. So we're going to look at that this morning in this passage and dig into that. And when we dig into this, we're going to find that many of our problems, many of our relational problems, whether that's in the church or whether that's in our families, whether that's in our community or whether it's in our workplace, many of our relation, relational problems are rooted in something spiritual and it's something the Bible calls sin. And as we talk about sin, it seems like oftentimes we just do this jump to sin as a list of don'ts. Don't do these things, don't do these things, don't do these things. These are bad things. Sin is bigger than that. Sin is, sin is centering our life around anything other than God. God has created us for Him. He has created us for His purposes and for His glory. And He is to be the center of our life and our, um, and, and our purposes. And Anytime we replace God with something else, that's what the Bible terms as sin. And because of our sin, because of our rebellion, because of our desire to be at the center of our life rather than God, Ephesians has instructed us that we are separated from God and we exist as his enemies under judgment, justly in that position. Paul has said very sternly that we were by nature children of wrath. It's not a comforting phrase, is it? It's a hard phrase. It's an uncomfortable phrase and it's, a, it, it, it's somewhat even confusing. But Paul has said in Ephesians that because of our hostility with, and our estrangement from God, it has created this hostility and conflict between each other. 
In other words, we have revolted against God and his sovereignty. We have set ourselves up as kings and queens, and it's created all kinds of mess, all kinds of brokenness in our relationships, in our families, in our churches, in our communities. Because we think that this is all about us rather than, about for, the, rather than for the praise of God's glory. So because of our hostility, because of our estrangement from God, it has created hostility and conflict between each other. I think this is a true statement that I'm going to make here. I've thought about this and uh, kind of tested it a little bit. I think if you put any two humans in a relationship, there will be conflict. Now, you may agree with that or disagree with that, but I think if you have a relationship with anyone on any level, there will be some form of conflict. Now, uh, I can prove this with any marriage here. Uh, I, won't, you know, I won't give examples of any of your marriages, but it, we, we, we do this. We you do marital counseling, and you get this you know, very loving couple who thinks that everything will work out perfectly in their relationship because they love each other just with an immense, immense love that others perhaps have not had in the history of the universe. And so they don't think there's going to be conflict. And you talk through conflict resolution and premarital counseling, they're like, yeah, that's good, that's some good practical things, but we probably won't need that because, you know, we really love each other. And then a year later, they're back sitting with Marianne and I, and we're talking through conflict resolution in a much uh, more pointed and with some direct application. We tend to think that there won't be conflict, but there always is, right? Any two people will have conflict. Any two. If you think this is not true, have two children, right? And there will be conflict from day one. Now, the young infant may not have conflict with the older sibling, but I remember bringing younger infants home back to our, back to our home and older siblings going, wait, that thing stays? Really? It's with us forever? And there's conflict. And as they age and as they start to fight a little bit more, uh, we see all kinds of conflict. And so I almost thought about doing this as just bringing two kids randomly out of the nursery, sitting here in in front of me and then putting one toy in front of them and just say, well, let's just see how this goes. And there would be conflict. Because I think if I took any of your kids, as perfect as I know they are, and put one toy in front of them, there will be conflict. Conflict is inevitable in human relationships, right? If you're married, you know this is true. If you've ever had a roommate, you know this is true. If you've ever had a parent, you know this is true. If you've ever had a child, it has been confirmed for you every day of that child's existence. Conflict happens. You cannot avoid conflict because we are all fighting for our own sovereignty and our own glory. And when other people come in, they're fighting for their own sovereignty and glory. And it creates conflict. Now, it may be subtle. It may be overt and it may be loud. Some of you are loud conflict people. Some of you are quiet conflict, simmering simmering conflict people. But there is conflict in any relationship. It just happens. It happens because we're sinful people who think the world exists for us. Conflict happens. So, what do we do in this world where we almost cannot have a relationship without there being some form of conflict? What do we do? Paul has said so far in Ephesians that we were far from God, but Christ has brought us back. We were enemies of God, but Jesus has made us friends and children of God through his death and resurrection. And now Paul's call on our lives is that we should live in a manner consistent with that status. He said, if God has called you and saved you, then live like it. Live like it. 
He says in, in, in chapter 4, verse 1, just to remind you that we are to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Live, uh, live a life, uh, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So God has done this work. Live like it. Live like it. Live like God has rescued you. Live like children of God. In fact, in chapter 5, verse 1, if you skip forward, you see that Paul says this, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Not just act like God, but because God has brought you into his family, because God has adopted you as sons and daughters, be like your father. Imitate him. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Be imitators of God, Paul says. He said earlier in chapter 4 that we are to put off our old self and put on our new self, which was created after the likeness of God. So Paul's, Paul's encouragement as he gets into so many of these lifestyle behavior types of instructions in the latter half of Ephesians is that we were created for God's glory. We were brought into God's family, saved by Christ's work. So live like it. Live in a worthy manner. You've been adopted by God. So act like it. Act like it, Paul says. God has saved you, so live like it. Now, as we get into this passage that we're going to look at this morning, we're going to see some very specific instruction. In, in, in verse 25 of chapter 4, Paul will continue to spell out some of the details of what that consistent life lived under the calling of God will look like. And here's where it feels like we pick up the sword, because this is not easy words. It will. There's a, there's a lot in here. There's a lot of different instructions, and my guess is that one of these will hit each of us, if not all of them hitting all of us. So let's just listen to these words in, in verse 25. Paul says this, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, and wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So there's Paul's opening salvo of instructions there. All kinds of stuff in there, isn't there? Falsehood, corrupting talk, anger, all kinds of instructions for us. And from my, my guess is that many of you can skim through there and find something that's convicting. You can find something like Paul just brought out that sword and started hacking. Because it's going to expose so much of our hearts here in this passage. Paul starts off and says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Paul is going to say that Christians should be marked as truth-tellers, as honest people. If you want a straight answer, go ask somebody in that church. That's what Paul said should ring out. Not necessarily true in our world, unfortunately, but Paul's going to say that. There should be this, this honesty, this truth-telling within the church. We shouldn't hide the truth. We shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't shy away from the truth. Because we're members of one body, because we all belong to one another, because we're brought into this community under the authority of Christ, speak the truth to each other. Speak the truth to each other. 
Don't lie, Paul says. Put away that falsehood and speak the truth with your neighbor here. God has saved you and God has put you into this fairly messy community called a church. And if it's to function as a light to the world, it can't be like the world in its dishonesty. So, tell the truth. Now that's a difficult thing because we live in a world that is saturated by lies. I was at a, uh, a, a high school forensics public speaking tournament yesterday and uh, listened to a couple different presentations on the evils of Photoshop. Um, it was high school girls talking about Photoshop and uh, most of it was done in a very humorous manner but essentially Photoshop is um, soft, uh, lie, lie-based software, right? So it's, a, it's an opportunity for us to put you know, some kind of communist t-shirt on Barack Obama and share that he's evil, or it's an opportunity for us to make people look like they aren't. Um, and it's, it's essentially that. I mean, you can do a lot of good things with Photoshop, I know, and I'm sure that's what it is. But, um, but they, were, they were just kind of sharing the, the negative impact that Photoshop has on body image for young women in our culture. And there was a lot of really valid points that they made. We live in a world that is saturated by lies, where we hear on our, uh, in our advertisements on our screens that the, this product will make you beautiful. If you want to be strong, then buy this. If you want your neighbors to uh, admire you, buy this. It's all lies, right? Because that product will not make you beautiful. That, that product won't do all that it was in, intending to tell you. Uh, you can even... You know, grab some, uh, you look at some of the, the car commercials. And I like car commercials most of the time. But you'll find some car commercials where it's always a group of friends in this kind of hipster little car and they're jumping onto trains, right? You seen that one with the Nissan dealer? The Nissan car is like this car, these, these wonderful good friends that are on their way to work and they jump onto a train, drive on top of this train, jump off, and this car will apparently make you be able to do that. And they have the little scrolling line on the bottom that says this is not actually true. But everything in that commercial is a lie. Everything in that commercial is a lie. Guarantee it. And I own a Nissan. I drive a Nissan every day, and everything that Nissan has told me in that commercial is a lie. Because buying a Nissan, and I tell you this from experience, buying a Nissan will not automatically bring you a group of friends who sit in your car. There's this kind of subtle uh, lie that happens in that commercial. You'll just have more friends. Good-looking friends. And... I have friends, but my car has not drawn these wealth of good-looking friends to me anymore. I don't have new friends because of my car. There's some weird online communities sometimes with buying a car, but that hasn't done it for me. Uh, Also, I have not been able to drive onto a train with my car. Uh, It's not the exact same Nissan, so that might be the issue, but I, I, I can't do that. I don't get to... I don't get to my intended destination any quicker because of a Nissan than if I had a Ford. It just doesn't happen. And yet the lie in that commercial tells me that my life will be easier and smoother and I'll have more friends because of this car. Cars will not give you more friends or an easier, smoother life. Eh, it might help with some things and you need to make wise decisions, but our advertisements culture is based on lies. You'll be happier, sexier, smarter, more liked, if you have these things. That's what we're told. We live in this culture of lies. And we do the same thing, right? If I uh, had dinner with you sometime this week and I said, so how much do you make? My guess is that most of you would uh, 
would curve things upward a little bit, right? You would round up. If I, if I asked you, and I, I promise you I will not do this, but if I said, hey, how much do you weigh? I promise you I will not do that. If I asked you that, most of us will then round things down, right? We, we like to fudge the numbers in convenient ways. If I asked you, how are you doing? You'll say, good or fine. Now, it's amazing to me that every Sunday, everyone in our church community is doing good or fine. That's amazing. It's like, it's unbelievable. Like, we should advertise that way. Come to our church and you'll do fine every Sunday, right? That's the, but let's be honest, we have not put away falsehood. There are some of you that came here hurting this morning. And there are some of you that are way better than fine this morning. And you didn't say that. You said fine. And some of you just said fine, even though there's great pain in your life. We weren't honest. If I said, how's your kids' grades in school? You would emphasize the classes that they do well in and de-emphasize the class that they're struggling in, perhaps. Or if I asked, how are your grades in school? You would say, man, I am great in math. I say, well, what about, what about English? I'm great in math. We tend to, we tend to do this. We, we, we lie. We build ourselves up. We build this image around ourselves. And Paul says, it doesn't belong in the church. Get rid of it. Be honest with each other. Be marked by honesty. This is the mission we're on. We're not trying to direct people to our greatness, which is what most of our lies do. They inflate our greatness. We're here to direct people to God's greatness, to Christ's salvation and love. And honesty does that. I'm a broken, messed up person the last few weeks. But God is great. The gospel is good news. And I need to direct people towards that. And Paul says, put away falsehood. Speak the truth with your neighbor. And so as you have the opportunity on Sundays or Wednesdays with other people, speak the truth. Don't buy into the culture of lies that we live in. The next instruction that Paul has for us has to do with anger. And it's a little confusing because it doesn't say exactly what we would think. You, normally you think, don't be angry. Anger is bad. And Paul says in verse 26, be angry. Uh, and my guess is you have never instructed your children with those two words at the opening of Ephesians chapter 4, 26. Uh, memory verse for the week, children, be angry. Um, I have not done that, and I'd like to quickly run to the rest of the verse, but Paul is not saying that anger in general is bad. He says, be angry and do not sin. So there is a, uh, an unrighteous type of anger, a sinful anger, and there is a righteous, right sort of anger. Paul is going to instruct us in this passage that way. Now Paul says, don't, don't let the sun go down in your anger and give a, an opportunity for the devil. So if you hold on to anger, then Paul says that, that, that you need to settle things quickly. But is it a sin to be angry? Well, no, there is a righteous anger. Jesus evidenced it at times. God evidences it. We too, at times, should be outraged at sin and injustice. And there is systematic injustice towards the poor and helpless that we should get fired up about a little bit. We should want to do something. We're kind of pacified in our suburban culture here and we should be angry at unethical conduct and injustice but we shouldn't sin because of it what happens though is that much of our anger then leads towards sin leads towards uh towards unrighteous action rather than the righteous action that so paul puts a couple checks on our anger you should be angry about the right things but don't let it lead you into sin 
And we'll talk about that in just a second here. But Paul's instruction is settle things quickly. This one gets thrown out at marriages, conf- marriage conferences all the time. And married couples ignore it all the time. Uh, don't let the sun go down upon your anger. Deal with your stuff quickly, Paul says. If you're angry at somebody, talk through it. Be honest again. If somebody's got you upset, go to them. Call them. Get clarification. Talk through it. Don't sit on your rage, Paul says. It's very, very helpful instruction. And realize that anger is a tool of the enemy to get ground in your life. That anger that starts will blossom into all sorts of horrendous things. And Paul will point us in that direction here later. But, but think about it. What does anger do for you? What does it do for you? Does it, does it help? Usually no. There are some things that we should be angry but Most of the things you get angry about, the cancellation of your favorite TV show, that's not, it does not help. Your blog about that is not going to help. It's just a venting thing and it can lead to all sorts of things, right? Well, what, what makes you angry? For some, you're sent into a rage. For you, anger looks like you go into a room and you may literally scream. You start throwing stuff around. For others of you, you're the silent, fuming, arms crossed, face red, blood pressure rising type. It's a silent anger for you. Identify the cause. Is your anger just and righteous? Then channel it into appropriate action. Are you angry about the mistreatment of the poor? Well, volunteer, give, organize, lead others on this course. Don't just curse out political parties and groups of people. That's sin. Use your anger rightly, Paul says. Don't let it lead you into sin. If you're angry about the guy who was driving too close on, too slow on the belt line, that's not just. That's not going to go well. You need to pray, you need to repent, and then you need to confess that you heed his car and pay up and settle things with him quickly. That's what you need to do. And then realize that there was somebody behind you on the belt line that was angry with you because you drive the same way, right? Let's be honest. Oh, I don't. Yeah, you do. You do too. That's right. I've ridden with you. Um, Be angry and do not sin, Paul says. Verse 28, then Paul continues his instruction, continues this uh, almost like left-right combination stuff going on in this passage. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. You might think I'm safe on this right one. You haven't been uh, jacking cars downtown on Saturday night. You're safe on this one. But how's your relationship with the government on those income taxes that you are filling out or should be filling out within the next few weeks? Do you ever bring home a few things accidentally? I've known pastors and others who have tapped into other people's cables, uh, cable subscriptions and Wi-Fi. And our stealing can be much more subtle than perhaps Paul was instructing, but it's just as wrong. Paul says, be honest, remember? Work for your living. Stop trying to freeload and defraud people. Be generous with what you're getting. And Christians should be marked by honesty, by righteous anger at the right things, and by generosity, not by falsehood and unrighteous, off, uh, uncontrolled anger or um, hoarding or freeloading. Christians should be marked by generosity because God has been generous to us. Unfortunately, we're not. We're often seen as stingy, tight, and uncaring. And Paul's instructions aren't just for our own health and the good of our community, but it's for how we look to the world. We should be marked as a honest, generous people, Paul says, because we serve a truthful, generous God. Continuing in this passage, verse 29, he says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. 
And so on the negative side, Paul wants us to think about what do you say about people? What do you say about people, especially when they're not with you? What do you say when people leave your office or your cubicle or your home? What do you say about them? Does it evidence a love for people and a desire to see them built up? Or do you automatically start fault-finding? Uh, it's interesting when you have a group of three people in, in a work situation, in my experience, and I've worked in retail and I've worked in warehouses and I've worked in different things. When you have a group of three people and one person leaves and there's two people left, the, it's almost like the default tendency is to start finding fault with the other person and start pick at what that person does wrong. wrong. And that's, Paul says it's corrupting talk. It's not building them up. It's not helping with solution. We tend to just pile on the other person. Here Paul's talking about gossip and slander. He says that just doesn't belong. It doesn't belong in, it, by, with the people that have been called by God together. You can't be gossiping and slandering about each other. Be truth tellers. Be honest. Augustine had a uh, sign in his dining room that said, He who speaks evil of an absent man or woman is not welcome at this table. And I sometimes think we should put that in our church bulletin, right? He who speaks evil of an absent man or woman is not welcome. That's great. Don't speak evil of people. How's your phone conversations? How do you speak of people in their absence? Paul calls us to build one another up and not to speak with corrupting talk. Verse 30 is an interesting one because Paul seems to shift gears a little bit. He says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. It reminds us of chapter 1 in Paul's instruction that God has sealed us by the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's put a, 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 this whole this honesty and anger and stealing and slander, all this stuff that then all of a sudden is couched under the work of God. The Holy Spirit is working here. God has saved us and is with us. And Paul says, don't grieve his spirit who is among us and working among us. We love to use language about Jesus being in our midst and we love to sing songs about the spirit of God being among us, but then we'll often talk about the ones whom he has saved and the ones whom God is saving and it grieves God. We'll, we'll, we'll worship God, but then will also badmouth his children. And Paul says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And it's, I think it's all, these, all these things are connected. When Paul says, speak honestly, uh, be angry and do not sin, don't steal, let no uncorrupting talk come out of your mouth, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Understand that God is working among us here. Understand that God's Spirit is leading us towards holiness and towards love. The summary statement is found in that next verse, in verse 31, where Paul says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. There's a progression here. Because I think something is done that we interpret as wrong. Whether it was or wasn't, we get bitter about something. Somebody said something about us. Somebody posted a Facebook thing that we didn't like. Somebody did something that we didn't appreciate. And there's this bitterness that can sink in. We just get upset about it. And if it's, not, if it's not handled rightly, it leads towards what Paul says is wrath and anger. If it, 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 there's a fire that is kindled in our hearts as we get angry about it. As wrath is, uh, is, 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 as our anger and our rage is kind of stirred up among us. And it will lead to one of two things, Paul says. He says either clamor, the NIV translates it as brawling. It might lead to physical violence if bitterness goes unchecked. Or it will lead to slander, which is verbal violence, where we start talking and posting about people. Paul says the progression, if you don't do anything with your bitterness, if you don't do anything with your anger, the progression is not good. 
The progression is not towards a solution, the progression is towards more problems. And as Paul's instructing us in here, he's talking about this community of the church, how are we to function, how are we to love one another, and he says, if there's bitterness among you, if there's any sort of anger, if there's any sort of, uh, uh, of rage or wrath, get rid of it. It doesn't belong among the people of God. So let me give you an example. Let's say you got passed over for the raise, okay? It was given to somebody else. And you get upset and sour and bitter. And it sets in on you and you're driving home and you start fuming, right? How could they do that for me? And they don't know how great of a person I am. So you start beating the steering wheel a little bit. You start sulking, you start yelling, maybe. And then when you start talking to your wife or your husband or your friend, you start painting your boss out to be the physical embodiment of Satan, right? And you're so, they're evil, they're evil, right? And you're slandering somebody. It starts with just mild bitterness, but it spreads like a virus and it will kill relationships. And it will kill communities. And Paul says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. On every side of a negative command in this passage, Paul has a positive command. He says, rather than this bitterness and wrath and anger, be kind to one another. Be tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I think one of the ways that we can obey that last verse there is by assuming the best. We tend, I, I can be a very pessimistic person. And when something is done that I don't like, I can assume the worst about people. I think one of the things we need to do in a church community in particular, but also just in our relationships in general, is assume the best. Give other people grace. Grace. And Paul says that. He says in verse 29, in our speech, we should be building other people up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Paul calls us to give grace to each other. Give grace to each other. And so much of our thoughts in our conversation, in our words, slander one another. They belittle other people so that we can be raised up. Where does all this bitterness and its association, associated emotions begin? We think we deserve something. I deserve that raise. He should be kinder and more romantic. I should be better off than that guy. Where, why are her kids so well behaved? She's a horrible mom. We think we deserve something better. And what Ephesians will remind us to do is to remember what do we really deserve. And Paul will say, we deserve death. You've made enemies with God because of your bitterness and rage and slander and brawling, as well as a host of other things that you have and have not done. And because God is perfect, his justice should be poured out on you. And instead, he calls you in verse 32 to be kind and compassionate. Forgive each other. It's the exact opposite of verse 31's list. How do we do this? How do we, how do we get this? Because our natural bent is towards bitterness and anger. And Paul calls us towards forgiveness and kindness. How do we do that? It's the last phrase in this passage. As God in Christ forgave you. You have two options, right? You can hear about how bitterness will destroy relationships and you can say, all right, I'm going after it. I'm going to deal with it on my own and you will fail. Or you can look to Jesus and you can understand freedom and forgiveness. You look to Jesus and find peace. We owe everything to him. We deserve nothing. We deserve wrath, but God in Christ forgave us. He didn't hold our sin against us. He forgave us. 
So there's no room for bitterness. Why would we hold things against other people? Why would we not forgive other people? Because God has forgiven us. It starts with God's forgiveness towards us, and we then extend it towards others. So there's no room for bitterness because we, we, we can't think that we're just getting the raw end of the deal. There's no room for stealing because we realize that God is sufficient and His grace is everything that we need. There's no room for dishonesty and lying because we realize the truth of God's Word. There's no room for slander because we love God's children and we love what God has doing. We realize what God has done and we respond by living lives of worship and service to Him. And Paul says then in verse 1 of chapter 5, Therefore, be imitators of God. Understand what God is like, understand what God is doing, and live like that. Live like that. You can either do one of two things. You can either center your life on God, understand who He is and His love and justice and mercy, and live like Him, following Him, understanding and being changed by His Spirit at work in you. Or you can put yourself at the center and fight with other people and be miserable. Listen, there, there, there are two types of, um, of people in nursing homes. Have you ever wandered through a nursing home to visit... Uh, your mom or dad or grandpa or grandma or whoever it might be. There are two types of people. There's, there's the elderly content person, right? And, and I have a, a grandpa who passed away uh, recently who was this sort of man. He was peaceful, content. There was fear as he aged and there was concern as he aged, but he was content. He had dealt with his stuff and forgiven other people. He lived at peace with other people, and there was this great contentment as he neared the end of his life. But I've also sat down with people who are grumpy and bitter, scared and angry. And you will end your life in one of those two states. You will end your life either content and peaceful because you realize what God in Christ has done and it has influenced your relationships, or you will end your life grumpy, bitter, and angry. Because grace has not set itself on you and it hasn't been extended to other people. Paul's encouragement here is you're going to have conflict in relationships. There's going to be all kinds of temptations for you to lie. There's going to be all kinds of temptations for you to steal. There's going to be all kinds of temptations for you to talk poorly about other people. And you can do that and it will create a host of problems in your life. Or you can forgive. You can be kind. You be tender towards other people. Not just because it's going to work out well for you, but because God has done that towards you. God in Christ has forgiven you. God in Christ has been kind towards you. Understand that. And let that sink in deep. Be imitators of God as beloved children. I've known both the peaceful and content elderly person, and I've known the grumpy and bitter elderly person. I can very easily see myself winding up grumpy and bitter because I'm kind of grumpy and bitter in life in general. But as the gospel sinks into my heart, and as I understand what God in Christ has done, it helps me to show grace towards other people. It creates contentment, peace in my heart towards God and towards others. I want to be peaceful and content. And the only way I can make it there is to know Jesus' forgiveness and kindness more. Listen, right now, there are relational conflicts in your life. It might be with the person who's sitting just a few inches to your left or right. 
It might be with a person who's sitting across the room or a person that you'll see tomorrow morning when you walk into the office at 8 a.m. There is relational conflict in your life, right? I mean, there's somebody, if not a host of people that you have conflict with. You have two options. You can either speak poorly about them and try to elevate yourself, make yourself look right and holy, or you can forgive. And you can work harmoniously. You can speak well of other people, even when you don't feel well about other people. And Paul instructs us to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. For many of us, we've got stuff that we need to deal with. We need to repent, ask forgiveness from God, go to that person, confess, and work towards solution. We need to put off falsehood, and we need to deal with people. And Paul's encouragement towards us is to know the love of Christ and extend that love towards others. Listen, here's what I'm going to do here um, in in a little bit as I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for you guys. And this might be an opportunity for you as we pray together as a community to just do some work with the Lord, to repent of some of those uh, things that you have said and are thinking, some of those conflicts that you have maybe even created. And then we're going to just bask in the forgiveness that God has given us. We're going to sing songs about God's grace and mercy given to us. We're going to invite you to take communion, which reminds us of Jesus' work accomplished for us. We'll invite you anytime during the next two songs to come forward. And, and there's tables on either side here, which will be put, the bread and the cup will be put out. And as you take that bread, which remembers Jesus' body, which is broken for us, dip it into the cup, which remembers Jesus' blood shed for us. Just remember his forgiveness towards you, his grace towards you. And seek repentance. Seek reconciliation with others that you may have wronged through your words or deeds. Let's be peaceful, content people because of the gospel. So I'm going to pray and we'll uh, thank God for all that he is doing and has done. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the good news of Jesus that he has forgiven us and that he has freed us. We thank you that you did not hold our sin against us, but in Christ you came to deal with it. You came to forgive, to reconcile us to yourself. We thank you that you have done this great work of salvation, that you have brought us into your family through the gospel, through the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. Lord, we're in awe of that, and we did not deserve that. And yet you showed us your favor and grace. And Father, as we interact with other people this week, as we're hurt by other people this week, as we're wronged by other people this week, justly or unjustly, may we be marked as people of forgiveness, not because we're just nice people, but because we have a God who forgives, and we want to be imitators of that. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your grace and mercy extended towards us. Help us to extend grace and mercy towards others. And as we sing and worship and as we celebrate and remember what you have done, May we be a people that are marked by kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. We love you, God. We ask for your help because we cannot do this on our own. It is a difficult, difficult task that you have set us on. But you have given us your spirit. You are leading us. And you have shown us forgiveness in Christ. So may we be imitators of him. May we walk in a manner worthy of the calling we have received. In Jesus' name, amen.